Welcome everybody to My Black Book Journal. I am your host, Danny Brister, and My Black Book Journal is powered by Act Justly Love Mercy. I have an exciting interview for you all today. I'm interviewing Dr. Rhonda Richmond, and this is a part two to the conversation that we started last week um, in our podcast episode entitled um, Autistic, Gifted, and Black. And um, Dr. Rhonda Richmond has a unique story, um, and I think that it's, it's a lot that we can learn from her story. And so, hey, sit back and enjoy uh, this conversation and this interview. And if you're enjoying my Black Book Journal, make sure you go to Apple Podcasts and rate, subscribe, and review. I love hearing from you all. Please continue to share my Black Book Journal with others. And you can always communicate with us on Facebook and Instagram at my Black Book Journal. All right, y'all. Enjoy today's conversation. So I'm really excited about our listeners getting an opportunity to hear from you, learn from you. Um, I think it'd be really informative, you all. Um, and we're going to, I, I just, I want y'all to hear Dr. Richmond, her story. She's going to share some tips and things with us. But before we jump into that, Dr. Richmond, go. I want you to walk our audience through who you are, your career, where you are and what you're currently doing um, right now. Okay. I think it's probably important to, to pull everybody back to where things started. Um, so I was born um, to a mom who was addicted and a, a dad who was bipolar and um, ended up being raised in my grandmother's foster home. Um, we had a huge stigma about disabilities. So I didn't know, I didn't recognize there was something off. I knew I was struggling to understand people and things and places and situations, but I didn't know how bad. Um, I finally got to school and a teacher said to me, I think you need to be tested. I think I was maybe by the time I had gotten to sixth grade, I'd had a lot of misspellings and couldn't understand social behavior, but no one said anything like that to me until I was in the sixth grade. And my family flat refused. Their attitude was, um, we don't have those kinds of people in our family. And if we did, they were terrified of what system I would be put into, of the special education system that was back there in, when I was younger. Um, so they did nothing, but I was still struggling. And at that time, I was really kind of writing everything to try to get anything out of information. Fast forward. I graduated from high school, but I was functionally illiterate. I could understand somewhat, and I was signing my name to contracts and things, but I didn't understand the contracts. I didn't understand what they were asking. I didn't understand what they were doing, and I really couldn't write very well. I had a best friend who kept pushing me to um, write in a journal. She kept saying, I'm going to make you read, and she did. She made me read the Bible um, because I was like, I don't know. I've been through it. I don't need to read it. She'd make me read the Bible like religiously. And then she made me write to a friend called Rufus or Ruford. She would have me do that every time I go to her house. Like she's just, I call her one of my bullies because she is one. My daughter's another one and we'll get to that later. But Latifa was my bully and she continued to bully me to write this constantly. She's like, you just got to write. You just got to keep writing. You can't go through life like that. But I still was struggling to really put sentences together, to, to do what was necessary to be able to pass. And I graduated that way. So every job I get, if there was no 
learning involved with it. If they didn't do any coaching, I really couldn't function in that job for very long. Um, I ended up getting married um, to a very abusive husband and we had one daughter and I had to be able to take care of her and survive with her. And so I finally asked him if I could get a job. I got one at the airport and I'm security. You've met me, Danny. <laughs> I got to be security at the airport, a TSA agent for a while. And that was good, but I couldn't do daycare and I couldn't get away and do that. Um, I finally got on at America Online. I had a friend who would get me in the building about an hour or so early, so roughly six o'clock. My shift didn't start till eight. Um, and we would just study. He would tell me everything I needed to do to do my job during that day. And that's what I did. I'd go in early, we'd practice, go to work, figure it out. Um, and then I realized I can't do that. You can't keep living your life in that way every single day. It's too difficult. So um, I heard on the radio that they had a scholarship to the University of Denver. Um, and I applied. Like I just heard about it and applied. After I applied, they pulled us all together in a room and they said, you have to take a math test and a reading test to be able to determine if you could get this scholarship. And I was like, uh, what? Like, are you serious? <laughs> and every woman that was there was like, they want me to do what? Take a what? I got to take a test. So I went in to this really old building. I take this math test and I cried for hours after just because it was so hard. In the middle of that, I got a job at U.S. West. Again, I had lots of people mentoring me on what to do in the job, but it was becoming to a point where I could only go so far in what I was doing. And I knew I had learning disabilities. I did not know at the time that I was autistic. So I got a call about, let's see, 1999, January something. And they said, Rhonda, um, you did not get the scholarship. I was like, okay, that's fine. I hung up the phone and they called right back. Um, is this Rhonda Whitworth at the time? I said, yes. And they said, oh, you won a $50,000 scholarship to the University of Denver. And I was like, no, you just called me and told me I did not win. I clearly, see, I, I may have some issues, but I know when you told me no. <laughs> that, did, that made sense to me. And she goes, no, I don't know who called you before, but I'm calling to tell you now you won. So I got in, started working for a business degree because the company I worked for then had the opportunity for me to move up in business. And my first college professor said, uh, no, you need to learn how to communicate. So you will get a degree in communication because you will not succeed if you try to get a degree in business. And she wasn't being mean. She was being honest. So I spent three years um, learning how to communicate. And then she told me I had to go to school for writing. So I went three years learning how to write. In the middle of this, I had children who got married again, sorry, and had children who had learning disabilities. So my first daughter had dyslexia, auditory processing, um, sensory deprivation. She also had um, severe ADHD, depression, um, allergies, asthma, you name it. We were doing 13 different medications at a time to try to just get her through life. But she wasn't learning in school. So I would go to work full-time, go to school full-time, pick her up in the middle, and then find out what she was learning in school. And then we just went on a home journey to learn what she was learning so we could reteach it to her. So I was doing that with her. 
and I had two more sons and incorporated two more daughters into that, so five children total. Two of them had learning disabilities, one had autism, we didn't know that at the time, and then two did not have issues, but they needed to learn same skills. So I just started doing that at home, get home every night from dinner, we're writing sentences and figuring it all out, and that was really kind of the first time I really learned how to functionally write a sentence from beginning to end, so in reteaching my kids. So got my degree in writing, and my daughter, my first daughter, my bully, said, Mom, you need to teach. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't. <laughs> she said, no, you need to teach in public schools because uh, more people need to do what you're doing. And hmm. I went to try to apply, and they changed the rules. You couldn't just have a bachelor's degree and, and teach. You had to have some kind of higher education that was either um, – instructional, or you had to have your doctorate. Well, I wasn't going to go back for a BA. I had just gotten a master's in writing. So I went back for, I went for my doctorate. Um, after my doctorate, they made me get another bachelor's degree. And I finally got hired into public school and started teaching special education. And my first year, I went from just being a, a what do you call it? A, a new teacher, teacher assistant, basically working with the lead teacher to be able to become a full-time teacher. And that lady quit midway. She didn't quit being a teacher. She just stopped being my mentor in the middle of the year. So I went from having a class of third to fourth graders or fifth graders to my principal saying, Rhonda, I need you to run um, kindergarten through fifth grade, 138 kids. I'll give you three different paras that will support you in this job who are all special education teachers. I couldn't even write my own IEP because my license didn't allow me to do that. Um, so he hired a team for me. We ran 12 different classes a day, and then I took on the autism program. I then moved out of that school district after that was over, and I got my full license, and I moved into Aurora Public Schools, which the school I moved to was kind of a train wreck is <laughs> a horrible way to say that oh my gosh um it was just dysfunctional so um we worked on cleaning it up making it safe for kids in our classrooms making it safe for parents to get all their understand the rights we end up designing um what it means to be an, an, a special education teacher we designed my first evaluation system and I've been teaching special education, but along the way, teaching any parents who came to me and said, hey, what did you do with your kids? I would just teach them what I did. Just keep teaching them what I did. And so more parents just keep coming and saying, Rhonda, what did you do? What did you do um, to help your kids? Um, and I would just keep telling them what I did. And the reason why it became so important is our daughter, Amira, moved from three grades academically behind to on target by fifth grade to an advanced classes by ninth grade. She graduated um, in three years at 16. Um, she went to college the first year um, at 16 at um, Barclay College in Kansas um, with 24 credits, college credits under her belt. She finished there in three years and got her master's, her sorry, bachelor's degree in um, business associations. Um, let's see, she was 19, got her M MBA at 20, got her clinical mental health, um, master's at 22, got her psychology master's at 23, and is still working to finish up her doctorate. So people saw her journey 
and then saw my journey, they were like, well, then something is going on that we need. But it wasn't until I was in my doctorate program at 40 that I found out I was autistic. And that was more of, I need to be formally assessed for disabilities. And they kept telling me, Ron, I think you have this thing called Asperger's syndrome. Then I'd go out and watch a video and go, nope, mm-mm. That is not me. <laughs> and then I would hang up on that person and not call them back, call somebody else. And I did that for several cycles. And I finally got a doctor who said, Rhonda, come in, please. Please come in because I need to talk to you. I did. And she was right. She diagnosed me with autism. And that has been probably the most eye-opening um, thing for me because it's helped me to sort through the things that I need in my life. And that's common for women, especially in our population and blacks. It's very common to be misdiagnosed because we kind of socialize our girls in the black community. We work really hard to make them look like girls, act like girls. We want them to fit in. We want them to be able to do the stuff that we do as moms. So we work on that from the time they pop out to the time that they're full grown. And then when we notice differences in changes in behavior and, and neurotypically, we're very different than a lot of other people are. Um, we don't want to acknowledge it because we're so scared of it. And I think that that's what my grandmother was dealing with. She was just really fearful of me being stigmatized by our community, that she didn't do anything. And I think that that didn't help me. It didn't help me to establish relationships moving forward. So it's been a journey of different jobs where I would run into communication issues, not understand how to solve them, and then move into something else. But since I learned that I was autistic, I now will just keep diving in for different tools that I need to be able to support that. Um, I came back to um, Elevate after 30 plus years. And um, I am now the director of national programs, working on their evaluation and data systems for teacher mentors, for EDs and for affiliates overall. Your story is one of of incredible like determination. I mean, you 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 said you worked at AOL. You would get up and get to work at six a.m. and learn before work started, like mm -hmm. what you were going to be doing that day, every day. Like that takes a you lot of determination. Take eighty calls a day. You can't yell at customers when you have eighty calls a day, and you got to understand what they're asking for right away and solve that problem. You, you have you ever worked in a call center? I have not. I've never worked in a call center. It is high pressure, um, but you need that. And you know, keep in mind before I was also taking my daughter to daycare, so I had to be up about three, catch several buses, drop her off, and then be at work by six, and then get up after work and go pick her up from daycare and then get back home. So it's something you have to do when you're a single parent and you want what's best for your kid. And that's not to shame any other single parents. I think all single parents do the as, work as hard as they can. I just could not have done it without that kind of support. And I, I think that's a good, well, first let me say this y'all because she left this part out, but you know, Dr. Richmond, was named the educator of the year in Aurora oh, public schools, you know, and I know she's not going to say that herself. She, <laughs> she talked about, you know, kind of how she built out the program and she talked about how she was able to turn some things around, but, you know, I think we have to celebrate each other because your work was really recognized, you know, by your peers and by the school system. And so, 
you know, t- tell me, t- so talk a little bit more about, um, about your journey at 40. You say, okay, I learned that I have Asperger's at 40, you know, right. walk us through then what that looked like for you after you found that out. Like, okay, I have to now come to, like you said, I have to now accept and acknowledge this. It, it wasn't acknowledged when I was a, a child. Um, I learned to just kind of press through and keep going and persevere. But now I have to kind of like, okay, accept this. And then what was that, what was that journey like from there for you? Well, the catalyst started because in my doctoral program, before that, I told you I was copying my textbooks cover to cover. So I, I just said I copied my textbooks earlier, but I really had to copy it cover to cover to be able to take a test at the end of the week or the end of the term. And then I would, I couldn't remember after that. So when I got into my doctoral program, it was so much reading involved that if I went to write it out, I just purged it immediately and I couldn't retain it and regurgitate it. And so I thought I was going to fail, which is why I sought the support of doctors to find out if it's my learning disability, if I can even achieve a doctorate degree because I was struggling so badly. So I went past an art store. I actually just decided that day I would just relieve some personal stress and try to paint with Bob Ross. And Bob Ross caused me a lot of tension because there are no happy little trees. I just want to say that up front. Nothing's happy when you're like, ah, (laughs) I can't do it. But in the process of that frustrating moment, I pulled back and realized I remembered what I learned when I read my textbooks, just doing the art. And that's what helped me to take Dr. Kaysen's advice and go in and get tested by her. And when she told me I had autism and told me things to do and things I needed to read up on to learn and understand what it is, um, that kind of sent me on a journey to myself um, and realized I had to do things like apologize. Like, I have a husband. He's amazing. Um, but I said I love you probably once because I figured adults could hear it once and they're fine. That's the way I thought people who were typical neurotypicals uh, worked. And so I was like, oh, he heard it once. He's good. And he's sitting there broken like, uh, honey, I, I need to know that you care. And I was like, I do care. I told you. He's like, yeah, um, once. I needed to understand I really wasn't socializing. So if we go somewhere with a friend, I would stay with just a friend. I would not socialize the group. I need to understand I wasn't making eye contact. So to learn how to do that, I had to learn how to be in a social situation and then pull myself out when I needed to be able to to rest or, or bring myself down. I need to understand that there were times where I was feeling a lot of tension and frustration, especially grocery shopping. Um, being autistic, walking in the grocery store, I thought originally before I was diagnosed that I was just being, you know, picky and like going to the grocery store. I didn't like the way that felt. So I would just, I would always make an excuse of a reason not to go. Um, After learning about my autism, it started to make sense. Going to the grocery store, which is one of the hardest things I do during my day, there's so many colors and bright lights and sounds that it was, it was causing me to shut down. So it made sense as to why when we'd be shopping as a family, I'd be like, honey, here's the keys. I got to go. By the time we got to the checkout, I I had already checked out. So it was learning those things about myself that I I needed to be able to say, okay, these are the things I need to do. 
So I learned to count when I'm when I'm talking to people, looking them in the eye. So I don't stare through them or drive them crazy. I learned to say, I need about this much space between us. I've learned to ask, are you a person who's very huggy? And, you know, working for the program I work for, there's lots of huggy people. A lot of huggy people. Um, so I've had to learn to do a lot of those things. And that has helped me to go back and apologize because I'm very rigid before. And I think I'm still rigid. Like, this is my path. This is the things I need for my path to be the way I need it to be. Um, but I can be forgiving on that path now, where before my attitude was, is if you're not walking this path, you're not walking the right way. Therefore, you're wrong and we're good. So the rules were just very rigid and fine-lined and fine-tuned. And I'm starting to understand those things a little bit better now. So it, it's taken me on a journey to self-discovery that I really needed. And and yeah. accepting it. A lot of people will say, no, you're a person with autism. And I correct them every time. And the reason is, I'm not a woman with blackness. Hmm. You know what I mean? I, I I can't take it off. I can't throw it away. I can't hide it. This is who I am. I am a black autistic woman. And I'm okay with those terms. I'm also okay with the word disability. I don't find any shame in it. And I don't think our community should find any shame in it either. Um, it's okay to have a disability. If I don't know that, then Danny, you and I could walk into the grocery store tomorrow and you might have a, a really easy time going through and I'm struggling. Well, if I don't acknowledge that this is a disability for me and it's a struggle, then you have no way to support or help me through that moment. You just probably stand there going, I don't know what's wrong with her. Like she was here one minute, she's fine. The next minute she's out in the car and she never wants to participate in that way. How can I develop the skills I need if we're not willing to acknowledge it's not the same as everybody else? So I can identify the stuff that, that I'm coping with. And I think that that has helped us with our children to be able to say, okay, our son needs this because of his autism. He needs things like weighted blankets. He needs things like... Um, space to himself. We never punish by taking away a stereo system because the music helps him. When my daughter needs things a completely different way because of her ADHD and her dys and her dyslexia. And our son Alex, who is also dyslexic and also has ADHD, completely different from the way my daughter exhibits it, then we are able to address his needs. And then once he's out and in the world, a lot of people are say, well, he doesn't look like he has a disability. No, he doesn't look that way because we worked really hard to do that. It's like when you say, people say, Dr. Rhonda Richmond, why do you want to have that name? Because I've gone to school for 18 plus years to be able to have that title. I worked hard for it. Well, when people say, well, you're just normal, we say, no, I have a disability. I worked hard with it but I still have a disability. Hmm. Yeah, so that's, 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 that's encouraging. Uh, and that's real. Um, and I, I really appreciate that you said that because, you know, it's true. Like you, you can't, you're a black woman, right? Um, you're not just a black woman, like you said, that happens to be black. I'm a black man. That's, it's just intentional by design. I'm, I can't change who I am. Um, but acknowledging and accepting and like, embracing almost I think it's really important to really moving forward and knowing okay this is who I am this is now how I move forward with intention this is the support I need 
This is mm-hmm. the grace I need to be given. And this is the grace that I can give to other people as well. And so thank you for sharing that. So you talked a little bit about you, you talked a lot about how you did that with your children. Can you mm-hmm. tell us that when you were a principal, when you were a teacher and how you helped students, how you helped um, parents navigate their own journey um, with their students' disabilities? Well, we set the we set the bar high. So I believe all students are capable. I don't care who you are. As long as you have the right teachers giving you the right materials, all students are capable. So I don't walk into a room of students with disabilities and think, never going to be able to excel. I'm thinking in my head, what tool does this student need to be able to excel? So what I tend to do is I, is I work with what's the skill set they had and what was taken from them before they got to me. So a lot of students who qualify, teachers will look at them and say, oh, poor baby, like, let's go with dyslexia. You struggle to write. So I'm not going to make you write anything on paper ever. We'll hopefully try to get you to type. Well, then what happens to that student by the time they would see me in middle school or in high school? They have no writing skills. Well, that's the wrong approach. What you do is say, yes, you struggle in this area, so let me teach you a better way to do this. And a lot of the times people with dyslexia aren't struggling because they can't achieve something. They're actually pretty smart, actually very smart kids. It's that it's the act of doing it is causing some kind of difficulty. So with, with, with my children with dyslexia, one of them actually, part of what happened with him is he would read from period to capital letter phonetically the wrong way. And it's kind of, there's many different theories around that. One is called left-right reversal, but still it was a problem that he had. So phonetically, he tried to put words together and then he tried to write it out. And if it's backwards in your head, it feels backwards on paper. So we did things on paper to try to help him remember capital letter goes here and work through the words as you go to get to the sentence. We start small and, you know, two, two words, three words, four words, a full sentence, a full paragraph, five paragraph essays. Just kept working small to get to big. With my daughter, we started with her frustration was she didn't understand adjectives and she didn't understand the difference between nouns and verbs. So we'd start with, we. this is our actual first sentence, the black cat. And we'd change the big black cat. And then we'd change it. The big black cat ran. And then we'd change it. And she'd write that sentence five times a day for a week. And then we'd change one thing about it five times a day for a week. And it just got monotonous and frustrating. And then on our way to the zoo, which we would do because I would buy membership to everything. And Danny, like the, I would buy a membership to the zoo, to the museum, to the children's art place. I, if, if there was a membership involved, <laughs> we were on it. And I would just make them write what they saw on the way. So I would start a sentence while I'm driving and they would all have to write it if they could. So if they weren't writing it, they were reciting it. So I see, what do I see? I see a red car. All right. I need to see that on your paper by the time we get there. I see a red car and we get there. I see a red car. I saw a red car while I was driving to the zoo. They write that before we walk into the zoo. So we were trying to implement as many strategies as possible because we knew that the content that we have right now for students with disabilities is based off of students who don't have disabilities. 
And the only good that that does for kids is it identifies, oh, this student is different. So it's great to have the tools to be able to identify a student who, who is on the margins. You know, we have tools like the Woodcock-Johnson, which isn't necessarily a fair tool, but it is a tool that helps you see, okay, this student is not achieving where we need them to achieve. So then what's the issue? The issue now becomes, how do we then support that student? And all of our content is coming from kids who don't even look like us because a lot of people think, well, you're a struggling student. You don't know how to help yourself, so I'm going to help you. If I'd have kept with that philosophy, I don't think I would have made it because there's not a tool that's going to help me that didn't come from my community. So we need to look within this community. We need to look within this community and stop having people who are outside of our community guessing. It's like, have you ever done a research project, Danny? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Say you're doing a research project and you are going to be out there looking at native populations in Africa. Have you ever been to Africa? I haven't been to Africa. All right, so you're out there, you're in Africa, you're looking at a native population, and you're watching them do the things that they do in their culture, right? Right. Then without talking to them, you go back and tell people what you've seen and, and what you think <laughs> needs to be fixed. Where is the, where's the problem in that? <laughs> well, um, I will say this. So when I interviewed Mary Brown Huffman, she said nothing about me without me, right? right. And I take that same exactly. approach. And it shouldn't be. There should be nothing about me without me. So without going back to find out if what you saw was what you think you saw, all of what you did in your research, while it identifies differences between the population you watched and the population you grew up with or a few populations you've seen in America, it's not what you think it is because you never validated it. All of the work that's come down for people with disabilities is decided by people with learning differences, which means very different than a disability. It means that they are struggling in some way and not reaching content in some way, but with a lot of support, they're back on track. I need something different than those kids. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to excel or I'm going to I'm going to excel and it's going to be a struggle. I don't know how many people you've met with dyslexia like I hate reading I hate it so much. It's the worst thing ever. And that's because they were taught to read by programs that weren't designed for them. And the way I've worked with my kids, I can't get them out of a book when they start books. I'm like, can you get out of the book? Because we got to go do something important, like get your medicine or see the doctor. Like, because we work so hard at it to be able to help them to get to the next level of where they needed to be. So it's more about looking at kids from the perspective of those kids. And we really need to change how we research disability populations. And we need to change the dynamic of what we're looking at and, and so that we can help we can help support kids. And it goes the same thing for autism. All the tools a lot of people gave me were either based solely on one person, Temple Grandin, and she's a lovely person, but she's not me and doesn't have my experience. And I don't have hers. The adversity she went through, while astronomical, is not the same as what what I've endured in my lifetime. So culturally, we are separate in that way, right? But they're not looking back into our population and saying, how did you do these things? They're saying, you're neurotypically different. Um, this is what you need to do in order to, fix, in order to fit in with society. And I think that needs to be, that language needs to be adjusted. 
would agree wholeheartedly on that. Um, question, because that, and, and I don't want to blindside you with this question. We didn't talk about me asking you this beforehand, but you're fine. Um, there have been so many so-called literacy laws that have been passed over the last few years. Uh, third grade literacy laws around students reading at grade level by the time they are exiting third grade or they have to repeat um, third grade. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I know that there's been a lot of conversation around funding, a lot of conversations around oh, helping yeah. students that have dyslexia. But if, if, if what you're saying is the case around the practices that we use for black and brown students um, mm-hmm. or students that maybe uh, come from, but maybe in poverty, uh, maybe at title one schools or certain things, right. then are these interventions going to be as helpful as we're kind of holding them out to be? I don't think so. So I'm just going to be honest. Most of the kids that I've worked with excel within content at the grade mm-hmm. level they're supposed to be at. And and I'll explain that too. Um, I was given a mixed group of kids the first time I became a teacher assistant. And the person who assigned me this group put a nonverbal um second grader in with uh, three females who were in the fifth grade and um, two boys who were in third and one boy who was in, I think he was in first grade. All different levels of kids. But they decided that year to change the literacy project so we were going to go to something that was more related to social studies and we they actually chose black history to move through. So we're talking about civil rights and, and all of that. And our kids are trying to grasp all of that on top of their disabilities. So what did we do? We took the vocabulary they would need to access inside of their gen ed classes, respectively. So I looked at the content from kinder through fifth grade. I pulled up all the most necessary vocabulary, and we learned how to read around that vocabulary. Then we read in context. I pulled out sentences and paragraphs from the text that they would be reading in class, And then we practiced that text and we talked about what does it mean? What does it mean if I put it in this book and in the setting? What does it mean now, you know, that we're removed from this particular situation a little bit further? My students were more able to speak about the content in their general education classes than their general education peers because we were so steeped in it. Well, then we decided to do an actual art project based off of it. So we built out this huge bus out of cray paper and we lined up some chairs and we kicked all the kids off the bus and we just put them through some real pains in the classroom. Then after that, we had a silent, we had a silent gallery walk where they put up their artwork, including the bus that we had created. And it was their job to host it and have other people walk through without talking because again, we're trying to support our one student who was nonverbal. Danny, that student started talking. He talked everybody through that entire thing. And it wasn't that he couldn't talk. He just refused to speak for so long that it was rare that anybody actually heard his voice, but he took over. And that was our youngest, one of our youngest students in the classroom. He was able to vocalize, verbalize, and they were able to do it. So if I would have taken the approach of well, they don't know phonetics. Like they don't know how to spell car and they don't know how to spell bat. And I would have just stuck with car and bat. I would have never given them the option that we actually came up with together. So I took that philosophy in all my classes. I look for ways to have kids write, have kids read, have kids 
pull out information. Math is at grade level. I didn't go below grade level because it's not okay. There are certain concepts as an adult I'm going to struggle with. That's why I have a calculator. And if I, as an adult, would have to say, I need to cal- give me a second. I need to calculate this. Why am I hindered? Why am I actually forcing kids not to be able to get that moving in? We had to do discipline. Discipline was important. I know a lot of people now think, well, it's unfair to discipline a kid. If I've got a kid throwing a chair, while other kids are trying to learn, nobody's learning. No one's learning. And I've had some of the toughest crowds, as you can imagine, I've had some of the toughest classes ever, ever with kids from all areas of spectrum, from extremely low ID, that's what we call a kid who has intellectual disability, to a student who has what we call severe emotional disability, where they're struggling with their emotions so much that they, they just, they're just offset. And we've had them all in the same classroom together with kids who just need a little bit of help. And we make them do it, everything. Everybody does everything, but we're doing it per your grade level. And the importance of that is because then they're not out of content. And when they go back to class, they are able to talk about the same subjects as their peers. They're able to walk through the same information as their peers. And then they feel more encouraged to move forward. I move more people off of their IEPs because we worked in content than I would have if I'd have used the materials that were given just because they were researched. They weren't researched on people like me and they weren't researched on my kids. So parents have to really jump in there and do some of the hard, heavy lifting because your teachers only know what they've been taught to teach. Does that make sense? Yeah. They're not thinking bad things about your kids most of the time. They're thinking, I was taught that you need this to be able to succeed, so I'm going to give you this. What they don't know is there's an easier way to do that. So when I taught special education math, we did grade level math. I go up and see the math teacher that was for their regular classes and say, what are they learning? Come back and teach it in the classroom. But I would do it with things like video. And we don't know how to do it. We're going to do an art project. So if we're doing ratios, they get to guess how many red beans to how many blue jelly beans are we going to need to do this project? They guess it. We go out and practice it. And then they go back and we pull in and say, what are the formulas that you need to determine if you got the answer right or wrong? And if you got it wrong, what would you change? And then talk to me about why you thought it would be this versus why you thought it would be that. We have to talk about numbers. And in our community, we don't talk about numbers very often with our kids. I mean, I pull cereal boxes off the shelf and ask my kids, find me 13 R's in the cereal box. And they're like, what? I need 13 R's in that cereal box. Find them now. Find this many T's. Find this many of this. How many do I have all together? We have to start talking like that. Pull boxes out. If all you know is how to add, add with your kids. If all you know is how to subtract, subtract with your kids. If all you know is how to spell car, spell car with your kids as much as you possibly can and practice different ways to use that word in different places. And then start looking stuff up. We have access to so much technology. We can help our kids as much at home so that when they get to to school, they're utterly prepared. And it's okay to be diagnosed with as special education. It's okay. There's not a bad term. Notice every time we change the term, we make the term a dirty word. So it went from disabilities to special education. We said special ed, that's a bad word. Call them SPED. So we went to SPED. And everybody said, oh my God, that's a bad word. Well, 
it's always going to feel bad unless you destigmatize it. So destigmatize mm-hmm. the word, use it appropriately, and teach your kids. Identifying that there's a problem is okay, but we got to get in there. We got to practice. And if you see people who need help, help them out. So, so sorry, that's a long so way of much. saying. I don't like that theory. I don't like that. I don't like that way of practicing. <laughs> it, it 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 really is a setback, and that happened to me so much that that's why I didn't get what I needed when I graduated. And you thank you so much, Dr. Richmond, for coming on my Black Book Journal. Before we close out, though, because I, I think I want to, we do have something fun that we do at the end of every episode where okay. we ask, um, we talk about how reading brings us joy. And so I want to ask you, I know you're an avid reader. Um, give me a book or two that has brought you joy throughout your, your, your life. How many spots does a leopard have? Okay. It has several African fables. I read it with voices with my kids. I'm not going to do it on this show. Um, you can. We won't, we won't judge no, you. This is a safe just, place. No. <laughs> it is it's a safe place. It is my favorite book. And now my kids ask for that book. It is so beautiful. The pictures are amazing. It, it, was really, it was really illustrated beautifully. So I love that book. I love it. Ask my kids how many different... Um, times I've made them write a five paragraph essay off of that book. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'll tell you. I love that book. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've enjoyed it. You've shared, you shared so much information with us. I'm really appreciative because, um, destigmatizing, uh, learning disabilities is really important, especially in our communities. It's okay. Um, to talk about. And for so long, we just said, Oh, that person's different. Oh, you know, they're special. Or we use terms like, oh, they're touch. And people didn't get the help that they needed. People were just kind of thrown into a room somewhere. So, oh, you know, you know, your uncle, you know, your auntie, you know. And and we have we have to, it's past time for us to move beyond that mm-hmm. to ensure that our students and our children are getting the assistance and our adults. Right. And I really I'm really appreciative that you shared your story. Um, one that that parents are listening and see like, man. Dr. Richmond is a a black woman that comes from America and she has an American story um, and, and how she grew up and, and y'all, you know, she, she only touched a little bit, um, but she's a phenomenal person, but she's not Wonder Woman, you know, no. and mm-hmm. I want y'all to be able to learn from her story um, and see that your child, you, um, that God has a great future in store for you all. So. Dr. Richman, thank you so much for coming on my Black Book Journal. I have enjoyed having you as a guest. I've enjoyed being here, Danny. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, y'all. 